This is Barry Zelma, Zelma Uninsurance. I'm an attorney who has retired from the practice of law and now spend my time as an insurance claims consultant and expert witness and author and producer of these videos. Today I'd like to talk about the attorney work product protection as it is very important to the investigation and work relating to insurance claims that eventually result in litigation. The work product doctrine was recognized in Hickman v. Taylor, a 1947 decision of the U.S. Supreme Court, and established a qualified protection for certain materials prepared by an attorney acting for his or her client in anticipation of litigation. The court stated, quote, were such materials open to opposing counsel on mere demand, much of what is now put down in writing would remain unwritten. An attorney's thoughts, heretofore inviolate, would not be his own. Inefficiency, unfairness, and sharp practices would in inevitably develop in the giving of legal advice and in the preparation of cases for trial. The effect on the legal profession would be demoralizing and the interests of the clients and the cause of justice would be poorly served. Close quote. Attorneys must be allowed to do their work in private. If opponents were to discover their thoughts, reasoning, and research, the effect on legal scholarship and the profession would be devastating. No attorney would consider both the strong and weak sides of the client's case for fear of disclosing the findings to his opponent. In National Farmers Union Property and Casualty versus the District Court, a 1986 decision of the Colorado Supreme Court, it looked to out-of-state authority and found support. The court held that a memorandum prepared by outside counsel to inform an insurer's general counsel of results of a claims investigation, which included interviews with employees of the insured, was not protected by the attorney work product protection because the dominant purpose of the investigation was not to provide legal advice. The court stated that the insurer could not avail itself of the protection afforded by the work product doctrine simply because it hired attorneys to perform the factual investigation into whether the claim should be paid. Finding that the attorneys were performing the same function that an adjuster would perform, the court declared the memorandum an ordinary business record that must be produced to the other side. In Baxter International v. AXA, a U.S. District Court decision from 2016, Defendant AXA filed a motion to compel Plaintiff Baxter International to produce certain documents. The only issue before the court was whether Baxter must produce the redacted portions of several memoranda 
written by one of its insurance coverage attorneys, and a few emails to which the memoranda were attached when they were sent to Baxter and attorneys representing Baxter in the underlying tort litigation. The lawsuit stemmed from the settlement of a multi-district litigation involving product liability lawsuits brought against Baxter and other drug companies seeking damages for allegedly contaminated blood products. Through the multi-district litigation, which the parties referred to as the second-generation litigation, Detchert LLP served as Baxter's defense counsel. At the same time, Baxter employed Shapiro Rodarte and Foreman LLP, the Shapiro firm, as its insurance coverage counsel. In this role, one of the Shapiro firm's attorneys, Carl Shapiro, wrote a memorandum titled Settlement Options Raise Second Generation Claims. During the drafting process, Mr. Shapiro produced several versions of the memorandum, collectively the Shapiro memos, or the memos, that he emailed to Baxter and Detchart. In Waste Management versus International Surplus Lines, a 1991 decision of the Illinois Supreme Court, it held that in this situation the attorney-client privilege had no application to the withheld portions of the underlying litigation file. The Illinois Supreme Court first ruled that the insured's contractual duty to cooperate with their insurers contained in their insurance policies rendered any expectation of privilege unreasonable with respect to the communications and that the insureds and the insurers had a common interest in defeating or settling the underlying litigation and the communications were of a kind reasonably calculated to protect or to further those common interests. The record before the court indicated that as of 2005, when the Shapiro memos were written and distributed, Baxter had an articulable claim against AXA, the insurer, that reasonably was likely to lead to litigation. That claim, arising from its insurer's continued refusal to acknowledge or defend the tort claims in the second-generation litigation, was the primary reason for the coverage analysis in the Shapiro memos and the cover emails. The court found, therefore, that the work product doctrine protected the Shapiro memos and the cover emails because they were prepared at a time when Baxter reasonably anticipated the possibility of litigation with AXA concerning its coverage obligations for the claims raised in the second generation litigation. When an insured has a dispute over coverage with his, her, or its insurer, or an insurer has a dispute over the applicability of coverage to a particular factual situation, it is reasonable to retain an insurance coverage lawyer to opine on the applicability of coverage and how to deal with the dispute to obtain the most coverage for defense or indemnity available 
or to determine there is no coverage available at all. The opinions from the coverage lawyer are written to allow the client to make a proper decision. It is private and not available to the opponents to use against the coverage lawyer's client. In Mission National Insurance Company v. Lilly, a 1986 decision, the district court held that to the extent that a law firm employed by an insurer acted as a claims adjuster, work product, communications with the client, and impressions about facts were to be treated as ordinary business of the insurer. Only a court that was ignorant of the obligations of insurer and counsel retained to defend an insured would, as did these two courts, convert an attorney into an insurance adjuster. Some insurers employ attorneys specifically as insurance adjusters, and in that capacity, their work would not be protected work product, nor would their reports be privileged. Courts, however, that state that an attorney performing the same function as a claims adjuster is therefore an adjuster should reconsider their opinions. I was a claims adjuster for six years before I was admitted to the California bar as a lawyer. As a lawyer, I did some things that might look like the work of an adjuster or that could have been performed by an adjuster, but not with the same knowledge, skill, education, and training as an attorney. An attorney working for an insurance company is retained to provide legal advice and counsel, not to adjust claims. An attorney who replaced a valve in a toilet in his or her home would never be considered a plumber, even though he or she was doing the work of a plumber. And similarly, an attorney who might take a statement from a witness, which is something that was also done by insurance adjusters, does not turn the attorney into an insurance adjuster. The attorney will and always will remain an attorney. In the article, Privileged Work Product and Discovery Issues in Bad Faith Litigation, the authors observed in the fall 1996 issue of Tort and Insurance Law, quote, a number of courts have viewed the hiring of an attorney to serve the dual role of counsel and claims investigators as an attempt to obstruct discovery into claims handling and investigation, when the communication is divisible into a purely factual or non-legal component, and a legal one, courts will generally require disclosure of the factual component. In Fisher, the attorney-client work product privileges and surety investigative information applying old rules to new tricks, a summer 1999 article in the Tort and Insurance Law Journal, the author stated, quote, insofar as sureties employ attorneys, whether in-house or as outside counsel to perform ordinary business functions, 
no privilege attaches. Thus, the attorney-client privilege does not apply where an attorney is retained primarily to investigate facts, but only when the attorney is rendering legal services and advice. And those issues of legal services and advice are clearly protected work product. The Court of Appeal, in a case called 2022 Ranch v. Superior Court, a 2003 issue of the California Court of Appeal, the trial court looked at each document, relied on what it described as the dominant purpose test. The dominant purpose test is applied to determine if privileges exist to a communication or not where it is clear that a communication between an attorney and his or her client has a single purpose, there is little difficulty in concluding that the privilege should be applied or withheld accordingly. If it appears that the communication is to serve a dual purpose, one for transmissal to an attorney in the course of a professional employment and one not related to that purpose, the question presented to the court is to determine which purpose predominates and rule accordingly. In doing so, the court should recognize that the primary purpose of an attorney is to act as an attorney and to give legal advice, not to act as a plumber or to act as an insurance claims adjuster. An attorney will always perform his or her duties as part of the requirement to provide legal advice. In certain instances, courts will conclude that it is difficult to determine if the attorney-client privilege or the work product protection attaches to a communication, particularly where there may be more than one purpose for that communication. The dominant purpose test not only looks to the dominant purpose for the communication, but also to the dominant purpose of the attorney's work. Vermont, for instance, joins its sister courts of New England in adopting the dominant purpose test. As the Rhode Island Supreme Court explained, the very nature of offense is such that privacy could always be given as the reason for erecting it, even when the evidence shows egregious, malicious intent, which plainly outweighs any benefit gained by the erector of the fence. However, the dominant purpose test and the sole purpose test are not far apart in practical terms. Under the test, a plaintiff still must show that the fence would strike an ordinary beholder as manifestly erected with a leading purpose to annoy the adjoining owner or occupant in his use of his premises. The dominant purpose test should apply where a document may have been prepared for a dual purpose. Under this test, a document or report prepared for a dual purpose is privileged or not privileged, depending on the dominant purpose behind its preparation. Insurers who wish to avoid the situation faced by the insurer 
in 2022 Ranch and assert the genuine dispute defense to a bad faith suit should consider using the services of an insurance coverage and claims consultant. The consultant should be a person who is an effective trial witness to give an opinion on a claim to the insurer before that claim is denied. This will avoid use of coverage counsel as a witness and protect the confidential communications from disclosure so that coverage counsel need not testify to establish a genuine dispute. This video was adapted from my book Zelma on Insurance Claims, Part 108, Second Edition, which is one volume of a ten-volume treatise, Zelma on Insurance Claims, and is available from Amazon.com as both a Kindle book and as a paperback. If you found this video to be interesting or of use to you or your colleagues, please refer it on. It's free. And please subscribe to my Rumble channel, my YouTube channel, and my blog so that you can learn of future videos and blog postings. Thank you for your attention.